This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegas. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So if you're tired of high cost and time consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at tegas.co forward slash value hive. That's tegas.co forward slash value hive. And as a personal anecdote, I use Tegas literally every single day. It's the first resource I use when I start researching uh, a new investment, and it's one of the last things I do uh, before I finish up rounding out my research, and I know you'll love it as much as I do. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org slash global dash investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot O-R-G slash global dash investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. Today's episode is also brought to you by Marhelm Data. Marhelm is an information service for investors to find real value in an overvalued market. With a focus on shipping and commodities, Marhelm helps you stay on the pulse of global trade, track global sentiment, and identify compelling global investment opportunities. ValueHive listeners can get 20% off a Marhelm Data subscription by using the code VALUE at checkout. That's V-A-L-U-E at checkout. Head on over to marhelm.com, M-A-R-H-E-L-M.com to get your discount today. Darren Heitman of Azarius Capital, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I DM'd you, I want to say like early this week. And I was like, hey, I read your letters. Um, you know, I was futzing around the uranium space and saw that you had written about it and tweeted about it. And I want to see if I could pick your brain and get you on the podcast. And here we are. It's a Thursday. This is going out tomorrow. And it's pretty, pretty quick turnaround time. So I thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm happy to talk about uh, my favorite topic, why, why we're bullish on uranium. So how did you get involved in investing in the first place? Oh, it goes back a ways now. I've been uh, an investor for 30 plus years, always in uh, the public equity space and primarily at boutique value shops. So uh, started in started in Chicago, found my way to Philadelphia about 20 years ago. And that value orientation is what led us to uranium. And were you always invested in some part of the natural resource space or were you pretty much you know it, you 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 didn't touch natural resources and then maybe sometime in 2017 2018 that seems to be kind of the point at which a lot of value guys started getting interested is that when you first dove into natural resources or did you like were you involved in coal or oil or any of that yeah that's a great question i mean that, that provides a lot of context to to what we do in general so to Zarius, our our primary focus, our flagship strategy is a small cap value strategy. And it's concentrated too, which isn't that rel relevant, but uh, but it does make us a little bit different. Uh, but the the key, the, the, the overlap with uranium is that everything that we do is based on finding companies that are poised for a fundamental recovery. And so even though we're bottom up stock by stock equity analysts, our style leads us to industries that are cyclical troughs. And we have done that over the course of our careers. And I say we because I, one of my colleagues is Chris Gillespie, who is our primary analyst on uranium. And he has he and I worked together in the early 2000s. 
at a firm called Schneider Capital Management, where we did a lot of really good industry work and always based on the cyclical dynamics of that industry. And he has been involved in the, the actual physical commodities in the past, always in the public equity space. Um, and then I've done a lot of commodity investing, but it's a little bit different. It wasn't, it wasn't natural resources or physical commodities. But when I talk about a commodity industry, I'm really talking about any industry where the participants are price takers. So, I mean, that could be trucking. It's really kind of home building. It's really a lot of industries. Um, and we analyze those industries through the same lens of uh, microeconomics. Hmm. Got it. No, that makes sense. And so at what point did uranium come across your desk? And there must have been some sort of catalyst where you had to clear everything out. And you're like, all right, like this is this is a big opportunity. I got to spend a lot of time on it. Yeah, it, we flagged it in probably 2016. It was simply because we saw that the price of uranium in our general reading had fallen into the 30s. And Chris and I had never owned Cameco because that, that would have been the one we would have owned uh, in our, over our careers. But we both of us had done enough poking around in the space over our careers that we had this impression that the price of uranium over the long term needed to be in the 60s. So seeing in the 30s, that's just a... It's just a signal that we need to do more work, regardless of what industry we're, we're considering. Then the more work we did on it, the better it got. And I should say, too, right from the jump, I was like, yeah, you know, let's, let's look at it, but it's not going to work for us. We don't want to buy into a declining industry, you know, that's in secular decline. No one likes, your, no one likes uh, nuclear power. So, uh, so, but that was wrong. You know, on a, on a global basis, we learned that, demand for nuclear power and uranium was actually growing on a secular basis. And then the next thing we learned very quickly was that in the current year, we, we were way under producing consumption, we being the global industry, the global suppliers. So again, those are, those are two great ingredients for a successful investment. Um, and so we just keep d doing more work and uh, we just continue to like what we, we learned about it. And maybe stepping back a little bit, looking at markets from, like you said, a cyclical kind of capital cycle framework, how do you go about finding like what industries are in kind of that trough of the capital cycle? Is it something as, and, and again, like I don't mean to oversimplify because I'm, you know, I'm asking what I think is a, is a, you know, very entry level question because I want to know, but is it as simple as saying like, okay, like which commodity price is down the most over the last year? year to date, year and a half, and then going into that industry and saying, okay, like if corn is down or if phosphate's down 60% over the past year and a half, like I'll start there. Like there's probably a lot of capital not invested in that space. Yeah, it's a good, that's a good indication that you should start poking around. Um, we want to be just a little bit ahead of that. And what I mean by that is my, my colleagues and I have been doing this for 30 plus years. And so we have a library of knowledge of what we consider mid-cycle for all these commodity industries, uh, whether it be uh, every every cycle, every every commodity industry kind of play can play out differently. You can get volatility in demand, you can get volatility in supply, you can get volatility in both. It could be purely a margin cycle, uh, but anyway, there's always something that's kind of a repeatable cycle that's playing out. And we monitor several dozen industries, which doesn't, it's not very time consuming. You know, if you already kind of understand the dynamics, you just see them go up, you wait for them to come down and you act accordingly. Uranium was different because we didn't have anything on the shelf, you know, ready to act on. So we had right. to ramp that up. So how did you do that? And I'm, I guess I'm asking for like the, 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 the raw ingredients in this, in this soup of, of, of getting up to speed. Like, how did you go from, okay, I got a, really fill my library with content starting in 2016 so I can understand and develop conviction on this idea that way as I as these ebbs flow through whatever cycle you believe you can you can hold through those troughs well I I will uh just so there's no misunderstanding we really only want to own these companies from the trough to something like mid-cycle yeah and so that's that's when we're participating and then we leave them and then we leave move on to the next next thesis and then wait wait for that that industry left to come back to us so um 
so but in terms of finding information it's very it was difficult you know it was hard uh, i'll give credit to chris gillespie for digging up a lot of stuff that was free and publicly available and the public companies were a good resource for that including cameco um and other companies other public companies but uh, then we, then we moved on once we got really serious about it we decided it was worth the investment to pay for industry expertise like uxc and, and trade tech and to see what they were doing but then i guess then the but then there's uh the iea and wna and some of wna's information is free also so even so it's out there but it's but it's uh you know it took some work and so when you're going through and you're reading and you're learning about these companies did you just try to go one by one through any company that kind of mentioned uranium like for instance i've got a watch list in 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 Koifin where it just it pulls every security that has uranium in its description and i'm like okay like that might be a good start to just go in with each company and see how they're involved in the fuel cycle what part they're in and get maybe a bottoms up framework for the industry yeah that never that's never a bad idea and it, it get at some point it gets unwieldy because there might be 40 or 50 of them but if you start the biggest ones and the ones that are really have a history of production that's uh, you'll you'll get eighty or ninety percent of the way, just just by doing that. And so you started with basically because well that's that's the cool thing about uranium as opposed to an industry like copper where there's thousands and thousands of producers. And I know like the production is domesticated or you know basically comprised of three you know main countries like Chile, Peru, um, and things like that. But with uranium, I mean, really you can you can narrow it down to like six companies six producers and of those it's like three it's like cameco because as a prom and like cng or something like that and uh you pretty much have like you said like the 80 percent right there in those three companies right and then Arano would be uh thrown in there but it's not a publicly traded stock but yeah i mean so that's both the that's that's one indication of what the opportunity is 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 that that's um all of the marginal producers had gone away because it'd been such a tough market um, so, yeah, that's where we started. And um, I'm sorry, I, I can't forget what the question was embedded in that uh, that statement. I got distracted. I got off track. Sorry about no, that. No, no, just I, I was just commenting on on how when you start from you know each company, like the cool thing about uranium is there's not many to 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 go through. It's really just like three or four. Yeah, and, and that's, I, that's on the supply side. Yeah, and that's and that's what we care about. We. Um, so yeah that i got distracted from my main point that yes that is why it's an opportunity because all the marginal suppliers went away but also made it challenging for us because we didn't want to take a lot of speculative risk and the fall off and i'll just i'll just use a general word quality which could be misused but the qual but the fall off from cameco to the to the next you know kind of quality investment opportunity was really steep you know, because Adam Prime's a fine company, but there's geopolitical risk. I mean, that, and we concluded that in 1819, um, even before Russia invaded Ukraine. So, so yeah, it's uh, the universe of of investable equities is pretty small. When you look at the supply side of this supply demand equation, there's a couple key questions that come up for me. Is 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 one like what does the supply outlook look like over the next three to five years in terms of growth and or stagnation? And then two, like one question I have is, is just how do you determine secondary supply in this industry? Cause it's very like, first of all, the pricing is very opaque from what I've read. It's very mm -hmm. like, it's not like copper. You can just go and buy a futures contract and there's millions and millions of contracts. So it's a very opaque pricing market, but then you have this secondary supply, which is, utility stockpiles, government stockpiles, military stockpiles, and all these like shadow pounds that traders have and things like that. So how do you reconcile that secondary with maybe your primary estimates? So I'll start with what the outlook for supply is. And from our standpoint, being bullish on the price of uranium going forward, we would describe the, the potential growth in supply as limited. So let's start there. It is going to grow, and that's in response to the price increase that we've seen so far. 
Um, but we don't think that uh, that incremental supply is going to come on fast enough and big enough to head off what, what we see as a real supply crunch in the mid-2020s. Secondary supply is its own topic. Um, and it's very confusing. Uh, and it is an odd commodity in that there's so much of it. So I, if, if I'm talking to somebody who's new to the concept of primary supply and secondary supply, and just and you didn't define it, so I'll, I will very quickly just point out that primary supply is what's brought out of the ground every year. And right now that's like 100 and, well, we expect that to be around 150 million pounds going forward uh, or in the in the next 12 months, say. And then secondary supply is this, uh, we, we don't consider inventory drawdown secondary supply. So let's get that out of the way. I mean, that that's inventory drawdown. <laughs> so that, that's not, that's different. And it's an important, it's really important data series to understand, but it's different. So secondary supply, I think if I'm just introducing the concept of secondary supply to someone, I say, just think about it as recycled material. Okay. So it's, it's material, it's fuel that could be, that can be used, but it's not gotten out. It's not, it's not coming from the ground that year. That's not what secondary supply is exactly, but it's, it helps somebody get their head around it. Okay, so we really had to dig in, and, and again, I'll, I want to give credit to Chris Gillespie for doing the work and helping me understand it, what, what secondary supply is, but we have an estimate for what we expect to be going forward, and we can get into it this podcast, or you can do a follow-up podcast, but- oh, let's get into it now. Let's, let's, let's dive into it. I got all the time in the world. <laughs> all right. All right, so let's talk. Well, all right, so now we got to get into the fuel cycle. So yeah, here we go. Cool. Yeah, um, and uh, I try to avoid it, but man, after several years in this industry, it's very easy to, to get pulled into the weeds. Um, yeah. And and that, but it's important. It's really, really important in terms of supply and demand. So, mm -hmm. so I'll give the conclusion first. Yep. The Russian invasion of Ukraine was very important in terms of its effect on the fuel cycle and overall supply and demand. And I'll go back and define the fuel cycle. The, but the conclusion here is because of that event and the geopolitical ramifications, it was the equivalent of increasing demand for uranium by at least 15 million pounds. Wow. And there are other estimates out there that are much higher than that, but that's what we're comfortable assuming. Yeah. And that's in a market, I mentioned earlier, primary supply of, of 150 million pounds. So it's kind of a demand shock of 10% of yeah. primary supply. In any other commodity, I believe the financial markets would react immediately to that. But this yeah. industry is so confusing, so opaque, um, so nuanced, that and so small that nobody really cared. But they will. All right, so what is the fuel cycle? Unlike natural gas, which gets you know, shaken out of the ground and piped to a utility and burned, burned to create electricity, that all happens in a very you know, linear fashion and kind of an immediate fashion too. What's produced this year is burned this year. And, and, and that's, um, you know, very simple to get your head around. You, the uranium fuel cycle is different. So you get the ore out of the ground, then you mill it to turn it into yellow cake. And that's what we care about, U308. But that's not what's used as fuel. So then that 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 U three hundred eight gets turned into gas. That's UF six, and that is a chemical process that's called conversion. Mm -hmm. And the reason they have to do that is because then they take that gas and they put it in a centrifuge and spin it to enrich uranium. Got it. That's called enrichment. That's yep. a that and that's a separate step in the process. And once the uranium is enriched, then it can be used in fuel rods and then put into a utility. That whole process takes about two years. Wow. So the ore that's brought out of the ground today will be fuel two years from now. I mean, you can do it faster, but yeah, you know, that's not a bad rule of thumb. So the Russia's position in the fuel cycle was very, very uh, dominant and important. And we had not had any conflict or any disagreement with Russia, not serious disagreements for what, 20 plus years. Um, and 
So the U.S. utilities and Western utilities in general had become very reliant on Russian conversion and enrichment capacity. In fact, you uh, publicly publicly available records suggest that the U.S. and Europe relied on Russian conversion and enrichment uh, facilities for twenty to thirty percent of their needs. Wow! And this it gets worse from a geopolitical standpoint because we don't have western we don't have enough western capacity to replace russia russian capacity so we really are reliant on russia right now for our nuclear fuel in the united states and in uh in europe okay but we don't want to be that i think the commercial this isn't a legal issue or a geopolitical statement or national security statement utilities have reacted to the current geopolitical environment. And I think it's fair to say they've all decided they don't want to be as reliant on Russia as they have been, because they know at any moment it could get cut off. Mm -hmm. So that's the context for what really matters. Enrichment, the enrichment process with, with, with Russia in the mix, Russian capacity available, the world mm -hmm. had too much enrichment capacity there's plenty of enrichment capacity okay in fact too much so that process is measured by or, or it's the capacity is measured by how many hours are you spending uf6 to enrich uranium okay. so when there's lots of capacity you're going to maximize the value of the uf6 that you put into that process and you're going to spend it for as long as you need to to get as much enriched uranium as you can so here's what changed with without by trying to wean ourselves off of Russian enrichment capacity. Now, now the West enrichment capacity is no longer is is um, is scarce. And so that's what became the bottleneck in the process, Western enrichment capacity. So the, those Western enrichers go from underfeeding. That that's the term for spinning uf6 yeah, for a long time i was gonna ask you underfeeding versus overfeeding where does that come in because that's a that's a fancy catchphrase yeah that that's what it is i mean I, I don't find it to be that descriptive but uh but that's what it is so they 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 use less uf6 to get the same amount of enriched uranium but but that's because capacity was was plentiful now that it's not plentiful they're going to they don't want their they need to maximize the the output from the hours that they have available and is spinning in the centrifuge so they'll they'll uh, use more uf6 to get the same amount of enriched uranium so that took me a long time to get my head around it so if any listener doesn't quite get it the first time that's understandable but but the conclusion is it's increased demand for uf6 which full which which uh, cascades back to increase demand for U308. And we think globally it's a 15 million pound impact. So then how does that kind of theory on the fuel cycle and the enrichment process, how does that guide your supply forecasts over the next, call it two to three years? So let's say yeah. it takes 15 million in supply. Think of it as a 15 million pound supply cut. But like, what are the probabilities that maybe the enrichment like there's some part of the enrichment process that comes back online so you don't have to use as much and that reduces the supply deficit hit that russia took off the market and then if things get worse like how do you model okay like if this if this enrichment process stays where it is or actually gets worse like that 15 million pounds goes to 20 or 30 and then that adds to the deficit yeah i think we look at it as in the near term, meaning the next few years, it's mm -hmm. it's just incrementally positive from our thesis standpoint, um, and it's uh, it's it's very likely to unfold that way. So so if, and if it doesn't, we still have a supply deficit. So uh, we don't see it as a potential risk to our thesis. We're not relying on that. Th there will be incremental enrichment capacity in, in the West. And it could come on as soon as the late 2020s, but that won't. But it, but that's not going to be 
a problem for our thesis. So even when that happens and overfeeding goes away, and that 15 million pounds that we discussed is no longer demanded, the market that might help the market come back into balance. It's not mm -hmm. going to create oversupply. And so, just so I can kind of wrap my head, overfeeding is equal to expanding the deficit, and underfeeding is adding pounds to the market, reducing the deficit. All else equal, is that correct, or is it the other way around? Yeah, no, that is that is that's directionally correct. Okay, so think of overfeeding as you're putting more U three hundred six into the fuel cycle to make this equivalent amount of uranium and then underfeeding is you're using less to make the equivalent amount all else equal. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Got it. Yeah. No, sometimes I just got to like say things out loud with stuff like this. That's complicated because I can read it, but then <laughs> I have to like bounce it off of bounce it off of somebody. So you look at, so that's kind of one part of the supply of the supply side, but the other part is you've got these, you know, 10 mines right now that are a mix of call it open pit underground and, and in situ leaching, 57% of global production comes from these top 10 mines, at least as of 2022. How do you model and do you model on a mine by mine basis since these are so large as a percentage of production? Like, how do you go about modeling those mines and plugging that into your supply equation? Yeah, that's a. I'm glad you asked because we don't really try to add any value as geologists. I mean, yeah. Yeah, that's very difficult. I'd, yeah, I'd be uh, be pretty lost. So we rely on the uh, the industry consultants to to have that reasonably accurate, mm -hmm. and uh, that being the production from these existing mines. And then we know what the brownfield mines are. Any mine that's been in care and maintenance and 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 um, idled, they're out there too, and they're all part of the cost curve. So we, uh, we could take that face value. And what we like so much about this thesis is that there's so much room for error. Yeah. I mean, the, the gap is just so huge. I mean, I've, I tell, I've told people that I don't think I'll ever see a commodity with this big of a supply and demand gap without a reasonable explanation of how it's going to close. I mean, we just don't. So, so those, those, the point is that those mind by mind estimates don't have to be exactly right for our thesis to play out. And you know, what's funny about that. And I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up is before, before kind of exploring uranium, I spent a ton of time on copper and copper, if things play out. And when I say things, I mean, like if we remotely get close to net zero 2050, I don't think we will. I, I I don't think we will. I don't think we have the. I don't think we have the capacity. I don't think we have the infrastructure. But suppose we get close, somewhere close. Copper seems to me like the only other commodity that has a chance at having such a wide gap between supply and demand. However, what I like about the uranium thesis, and I've said this with Alex, my partner Makarovs, is uranium is kind of like everything you love about copper but with a price agnostic buyer on the other end that is more OPEX versus CAPEX driven. And like, when you think about it like that, it, it becomes very, very attractive. Um, just from a, like you said, like an investment thesis perspective. Yeah, I agree with that. And we get asked about a lot of other commodities that have that wedge, the supply and demand wedge. Yeah. And the big difference as we see it is that the, the demand growth that's built into those, those supply it's and demand. Crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> it is. Well, you're right. And it's all based on, you know, projections of, 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 uh, of electrification basically. Yeah. Whereas our, our demand, our demand estimates are based on nuclear power plants that are in operation and they're currently under construction. Yeah. So that demand seems more visible to us. And as you said, um, it's very likely, like almost 100%. Well, you know, that's nothing's ever 100%. But in that, in this context, it's very likely that the fuel, that the, the consumption estimates are going to be accurate. And and the, whereas with other com commodities, the demand outlook is much less certain. Yeah. And in some cases, I mean, they can't even be real. I think that's what you're getting at too. I mean, they, they yeah. just can't. They can't happen. Yeah. There's one other distinction that we I don't even think we've talked about yet. So. 
it, it depends on when you're talking about copper or some of these other some of these other commodities that had that huge uh, wedge. A lot, almost over the last five years, we're almost always talking to people when those commodities were trading at prices that were above the marginal cost of production, and that's that's the that's what's so attractive or has been so attractive to us in, in uranium is that you had the wedge plus you had a commodity price that was way below the the economic incentive to produce. Yeah, no, that's 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 exactly correct. Um, because I think at one point, what was it like after? I don't know if it was after Fukushima, but it got down to like what nine dollars a pound or something. And at that point, like, what was like, what was what was the marginal cost to production, and and how is that like how has that evolved over time since call it twenty eleven? Yeah, the the price peaked at around one hundred forty yep. in two thousand seven. It was still very healthy. It came off that boil in 2010 and 2011 pre-Fukushima, but it was still very healthy. And um, the, su the supply picture was different back then too. But to your, to your question, um, it then it went, then Fukushima hit right after that bull market. So there's yeah. a lot of production in the pipeline and the demand outlook looked really stable, but then Japan took 12% of global demand off, off the market and no, no commodity can survive that. So from there, the commodity, it didn't collapse surprisingly. It didn't just, it didn't, it didn't hit its low in 2012 or 13. Hmm. It actually bottomed, I think it was in 2016 or yeah, I think it was 2016 around the upper teens. Let's really huh. just say 20. I wonder why, I wonder why it took so long. Cause you'd think like with that huge of a demand hit, you'd have a pretty, and by instant, I mean like within the year, right? You'd have a pretty immediate price response. But I guess it's, is that a function of the opaqueness of the market? Yeah, I, I don't have a good explanation for why it didn't just collapse right away. Yeah. But I think, um, but it's a good opportunity to bring up the explanation of how this market clears. Right. And so I mentioned natural gas before. Um, and I know that I know that utilities have contracts for natural gas, but you can see how that market could clear in a spot in a spot market. So most most commodities clear more in a spot market than than uranium. So with uranium, utilities get around 85 or 90 percent of their consumption needs under long term contracts. And so that's that's the economic clearing price that we don't always see. You know, because right. those are privately negotiated transactions. Those are, those are what technically called forward contracts. Yeah, well, for yeah, forward long-term contracts. Okay, and they can they could be for a utilities' needs for the next ten years. Wow. Okay. Uh, what and now the utility will have their near-term needs covered almost one hundred percent, and then going out ten years, maybe their fuel requirements are only covered by twenty percent. So, but they're but they're always constantly covering their future fuel requirements. And so that that makes the spot market less important in the utility industry, and a little bit, um, you know. So and I, so you don't have. I guess the point is that you don't have the the sellers and the buyers having to participate all the time every year in that market, and so the price doesn't always reflect reality. Yeah, I was uh, I was watching a video with with another you know popular uranium bull and 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 he was talking about the the spot market and he was like yeah sometimes it's just people throwing bids and asks up there and they're not even real it's just just to kind of like fish to see what's out there which is just yeah. again it's so different from like copper or silver where you go out and like the bids the bid and the ask is the ask and the spreads are maybe a couple cents depending on the contract yeah it, this has been an education for sure um yeah. it's been fun and sometimes frustrating but always interesting yeah. Well, I want to I want to stay on the supply side just a little bit more in terms of getting an idea of how you think about the probability of supply distributions. And so a good example of this is let's the recent news with Cigar Lake and the issues that they've had there and um just production cuts that have come down from both I think it's Cameco and Kazazaprom just you know saying hey it's going to it's going to come in lower. When you see those estimates do you then go in and say, okay, like let's assume production cuts are legit and they stay around for the next six to twelve months, and then you lower your production guidance and you know you've got like this adjusted deficit. 
And is, 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 is that kind of how you do it? Or you just say, look, like these production cuts, like it's probably going to be a one-time thing. We're just going to assume some sort of higher production to bake in a margin of safety on the deficit. So, so we do have supply estimates for every year going out. And uh, what we like about the thesis is that we can assume everything goes right from a production standpoint, and there's still not enough supply. Yeah. According to our models. And, and that's going to occur soon enough for it to matter. You know, we don't have to wait till 2030 or 2040 for it to happen. Right. So, um, so we do account for all that disappointing news and we're not surprised. And so we, when we put this model together, uh, we're not miners and we're not experts in, in mining, but we know that in business and especially in mining, things go wrong. Yes. You know, so all those estimates are based on best case scenarios. And that never happens. So things cost more and take longer than anybody ever anticipates. So that just makes the thesis more bulletproof from our standpoint. And then on the topic of supply, when you model out, are there any new supply sources that you see coming online at certain prices right along the cost curve? So maybe at, at $100 a pound uranium, you have and I'm just throwing random numbers out. You have yeah. another 5 million pounds of supply. At 120, you've got another 15, 20 million pounds of supply. Like, how do you, how do you think about that? And then the problem, because, and then, and then again, going back to like copper, stuff like that, like you have a lot of like pipeline mines, but you know for a fact that 90% of those are not going to get built within the time they say. And if they do, the costs, for those projects are going to skyrocket by the time they actually get shovels in the ground and picking out the mine. Yeah, for sure. So you mentioned that we know we as a group as an industry yeah. know what all the producing mines are. We know what all the idled mines are, and we also know what all of the likely developed mines will be going forward. And so then it's a matter of how do you stack those incremental mines? The big one, which we can name, is NextGen. I mean, that, that's a monster if they could produce anywhere near what they are telling people they could produce at. And there's really doesn't seem to be any controversy around the geology and, and the resources that are there. But, um, but it's going to take time for that mine to get up and running, you know, and, and so we have our estimates what best case will be. But I think everybody would agree it's late 2020s, you know, at the earliest. I mean, I have seen 2026. I, I, we we don't think that's going to happen, but yeah. um, but but we can again the supply and demand model that we've built can withstand that capacity coming on when we expect it to come on. Uh, but that's the big one. I mean, that would fill a lot of that fill a big hole. How um, much are they estimating, by the way? I don't I don't know off the top of my head. But just yeah, random. this might be an exact. Whenever I think about next gen, I think twenty five million pounds per year. Wow, so that um, is significant. Yeah, it's massive, massive, and low cost. You know, probably not as low cost as what, as what they might be saying, but yeah. not that they're dishonest. But things, like I said, things are never as good as as what you uh, is is which plan. And so, of those new new supply mines, like what regions should like someone like myself be looking at? Like, I think what is it, the Athabaca or something? I might be getting that wrong, but like yeah. there's like one or two regions. And this is this is a theme with uranium. It's like there's like one or two, everything's highly concentrated and it makes it nice from a supply side. Like just focus on these two regions, these 10 companies, these eight countries and you've, yeah. and you've got it. <laughs> well, so that's going to come down to an investor's risk tolerance. Okay. And so, um, but let's talk about Kazanamprom yeah. now because it's, it's, it's really relevant. So they went from being a minor producer in the early 2000s to being a 40% supplier of all of global uranium. Wow. And they're a low cost producer as well. So they really changed the market structure quite a bit. Um, so you could, uh, so I know a lot of people we like, like them because of that profile, low cost producer, dominant market share. Yeah. Now we think that the market is is obviously bifurcating. Now maybe that'll change, and um, but maybe it won't. We're assuming that the that the Western utilities increase the share of fuel that they get from Western suppliers, and so it's not that they'll cut Kazanaprom to zero, 
but they're probably not going to incrementally give Kazadimprom more more share. In fact, we would expect it to go down. And Kazadimprom right. is probably going to shift that supply to China. You know, it'll go east instead of west. So the market is generally a global market, but to the extent that Western producers gain share, they're they're going to be higher cost producers in general, and so that drives up the cost curve. All right. So more directly, you have Canadian producers and it's the Athabasca Basin, uh, which is very proven to be uh, to be a uh, source of uranium and a decent at a decent cost. Um, we have uranium in the United States and there will be production in the United States again, probably never be 40 million again, pounds per year again, like it used to be, but, uh, but it'll, it'll ramp up. And so you can have production uh, or have exposure there. Africa's can be interesting, but there's high cost producers. So if uh, an investor is comfortable with the, the sovereign risk and, uh, and, and then being that far out on the cost curve, that could be very interesting. Um, and then, of course, Australia has resources, and there are a lot of miners there. Uh, I guess in general, uranium is not hard to find yeah. globally, but still costs money to get out of the ground. But having said that, it's worth pointing out that China is a, a large and growing uh, source of demand. And by 2030, they'll be the largest um, consumer of uranium. And they cannot, so, so far, they haven't been able to produce much uranium domestically. So they will always be an importer of uranium. Got it. No, that's 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 helpful because well you mentioned cause Adiprom went from call it a marginal small producer to 40 million pounds. Are you worried that another producer could do something like that? Like a smaller one comes in and then they 10, 20x their production and all of a sudden supply you know, 10, 10 to 20 X is relative to that. Like, like what, like, I guess, what are the odds another Kazada prom happens? Yeah, we, yeah, something of that scale seems very unlikely, you know, going yeah. from almost nothing to 40% share. So how did, how, how did they do that? Did they just have a huge mm -hmm. land package and just kept digging and kept finding it or like, <laughs> well, I wouldn't, that's a good question. I guess I haven't studied it. I know what happened, but I don't really know yeah. why, um, it's but they, wild. they, yeah, it kind of is. And I think that that's why people look at Uzbekistan and mm -hmm. think maybe the same thing could happen there. Okay. Um, we, from what we know, it can't, it won't happen at that scale, but, but they could potentially expand their capacity. Um, I guess let's go back to Kazanaprom because I think that's some, some people that are less or yeah, less bullish than us believe that Kazadimprom can go from say 55 to 60 million pounds of production to 80 fairly easily and in fairly short order. We we're skeptical of that, but that's something we worry about and we, we watch. So I would, I wouldn't, we're not ruling out the possibility that somebody can ramp supply. Yeah. And we're, we're very sensitive to that. We, we, I, I often say, I mean, this is, a, this is a supply story. You know, the demand outlook is great. So don't get me wrong. Um, but, but we're bullish because there's not enough supply. And so as soon as it looks like there's going to be enough supply, we're going to be a lot less bullish. So are you, are you, are you confident in Kazada not growing as fast as maybe, you know, bears or people that aren't as bullish think because of like the traditional high cost inflation cost curves are rising and all the easy uranium has been mined already. And so what's left is way harder to get and way more expensive and requires, hundred plus dollar a pound uranium that won't be the case in kazadam prom i mean okay. they, they'll still be able to find incremental uranium but they but they have a but they have a depletion rate that they have to address so it's not okay so yeah they'll find uranium but some of that's just offset their their depletion got it and and they're in a joint venture with russia to develop a a, a large new uh mine that will produce you know a significant amount of uranium but now you have to overlay the geopolitics a little bit say, okay, well, even no matter how much capacity Kazadimprom might have, they still have to sell it on the, on the market. And to the extent the West doesn't want it, there's going to be, you know, there's, there could be limited demand for it. Um, so they won't, they def, there's almost no scenario in our minds where they set the marginal price where they're the marginal producer, but they are important. I mean, there's, the extent they're producing a lot, it pushes the uh, cost curve to the left. And so mm -hmm. 
just makes uranium a little bit less expensive. How do you think about resource nationalization and, um, you know, like metallic nationalization is, is something that I'm focused on where you've got this shift from globaliza globalization to everything's reshoring, trying to secure all the supply in-house, make sure home country's good. How does that affect the supply model going forward? Well, I think that's most relevant in our speculation of how China thinks about it. Okay. So, um, and we have one data point or one good data point with China where they developed a mine in Africa and it was very high, it ended up being a very high cost mine and it, un, it produced less on an annual basis or took longer to ramp up than they expected. So it's kind of a, commercially it would have been a disaster, but they probably didn't care because they need uranium. And I don't mean to be flippant because, you know, it's a big, large country and they're very, you know, they're very, a lot of very smart people, but, but in the end, they, they have national policies they're going to pursue and it's not going to be driven by solely by economics, like mm -hmm. it would be for a privately traded company or privately owned company in, in the United States. Yeah. So, but to the extent that they want to expand capacity, it's not like they can do it in the dark. You know, these things are very visible and, and they, Right now, there are no big projects that are being developed by state actors that won't that aren't sensitive to economics. I mean, mm -hmm. and Russia would fall in, in that category too. So, so the industry knows what what's happening on the ground yeah. in terms of supply. Got it. No, I appreciate. I mean, I appreciate you letting me pick your brain on the whole supply side because I think that's where it's kind of there's there's a lot more moving parts. I feel in supply than in demand which isn't always the case for a lot of these uh commodities by the way so um let's let's shift now to supply though because as i mentioned earlier uranium is that interesting commodity where it seems like you have a price agnostic buyer and it seems like the u308 and this is a very loud talking point from the bulls is 308 is such a small input cost to running a power plant that uranium could go from 60 pounds to 120 and power plant utilities have to buy. Then they're going to buy because you can't, you know, you can't shut down a power facility. You got to keep the lights on. So walk me through how you view demand. We can start maybe with the utility companies and then move to what I think is a newer development in the financial buyer with a lot of ETFs, a lot of hedge funds spinning up basically hold codes to buy physical uranium. So let's start with the uh, price inelasticity. I mean, and, yep. and I think that's, that's probably true in the short terms, but in the long term, we don't rely on that. Um, and I, and I do think we, we have a pretty good relationship with, with uh, a fuel buyer and, and he's convinced us that, uh, you know, utilities do care. I mean, it's not like, and, and the cost does matter. So, so I guess I'm not, I'm not one of the, the people that say that utilities will pay whatever they have to pay. Now, maybe for one transaction they will, but that's not what drives value at these miners for, for the miners that are need to sign, sign long-term contracts. Yeah. So, you know, so over time, we're assuming that regardless of what's going on, um, that, that there's a lot of gravitational pull towards the marginal cost of production, which we think is around 80. Okay. Could it spike above that for a while? Absolutely. You could sign long-term contracts above that. You know, the last cycle, there were long-term contracts signed for uh, over $100. Of, that's our understanding. So, uh, so anyway, I guess I, I try not to get carried away by, by that. Uh, that that talking point that it's a price inelastic commodity it in the context of all commodities it, it is i mean there's less demand destruction in in the uranium space than probably any other commodity mm -hmm. but uh, but it still has to exist i mean over the long term the natural gas still competes with with electricity even in this climate change regime you know there's still a limit to what people pay for electricity so what is there is there a price point that you have maybe and this is you know this is um could be just a guess but a price point where uranium trades so high where natural gas becomes a serious substitution threat 
Yeah, taking the politics out of it, um, it'll depend on where natural gas is is trading as well. Mm -hmm. um, we haven't done that, Matt. That's a not not from that standpoint. Um, we know the natural gas at two or three dollars is very competitive with with nuclear with everything. So, so that's I guess that's that's where we've we've come at it from that standpoint, as opposed to where do you get demand destruction. And, I, and now, that, now that you forced me to think it through, the reason for that is if it ever gets to that point, we are long gone. We're yeah. gonna be, we have already declared victory, and that's uh, a good point. <laughs> yeah, no, that's 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 definitely a good point. And so when you when you look to model out demand as best you can, um, like how do you how do you bucket it? Right, I know there's these. You can you can the, the one bucket that I'm kind of more more sure of is. The large utility companies, whether that's in Japan, Europe, Germany, the U.S., U.K., like you've got those guys. Um, so let's start there, and then you know walk me through how you model out those those demands. Well, there's 430 reactors currently in operation today. Um, there's some idle, mostly in Japan, that will be coming back online. Um, recently, we've had life extensions, which is um, Actually, not that important to our near-term demand model, but it's nice to see. But restarts are because uh, a restart is can be an unexpected source of, of demand and also takes a little bit more, well, not a little bit more, two or three times the annual consumption of uranium to restart, uh, restart a reactor. Huh. And then from there, we know that there's kind of on an ongoing basis between 50 and 60 reactors under construction all the time. Five, five come online, five are completed and come online, and five new ones get started uh, globally. That's net of shutdowns, and that's a rough number. But the, uh, you know, it's probably more like five to eight. So, so you, but so as you take a point in time, you have your 430 that are running. You have your restarts that are likely to occur, and then you have the the work in process, the new reactors that will be coming online, and uh, there's your demand model. And and there's very little variance. I mean, there's some, but it's very visible. And so then, and again, you know, forgive me if this sounds you know stupid, but is it just a factor of take the 430 and then multiply it by however many you know gigawatts or megawatts it needs, and then from that calculation, you just figure out how many pounds of uranium you need for each megawatt or gigawatt of production. Then there's your demand. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, and. Uh, and that you can use uh, historical averages to get there. You can, and then there, there are publicly available sources that, uh, that track that as well. So then what's the upside, like blue sky case for demand? Is it just, is it just, hey, more reactors are coming online or is it, hey, more reactors plus, you know, we're going to start using more uranium plus, um, you know, we need more power from each reactor sort of thing. In the near term, in near term, say three to five years, yeah, it's a good news, bad news thing. The good news is you can be really certain within a certain within a fairly narrow band of what consumption is going to be. The bad news is you're really certain within a very narrow band what the <laughs> consumption is going to be. So I mean, there's really no upside either, yeah, because um, because nuclear power plants don't get built quickly. The exception would be if the industry overall decides they want to build inventory, which could happen. I mean, there's some pro-cyclical mentality in this industry that's been displayed in the past, and maybe that gets displayed again, um, but that's not real demand. That's not real consumption. And but when you say build inventory, is that going back to the supply side where they just hold uranium like in warehouses for future use? Yeah, it really would be that. So you have a utility operator in the United States. Might their their target inventory might be two years worth of supply, including work in process. Maybe they they're not comfortable with their visibility of supply or the the risk that maybe they lose Kazatomprom and in Russia as a supplier, they might be trying to build inventory to two and a half or three years. So that that could happen. I mean, we know it's been in reverse for the last whatever. Um, mm -hmm. 10 years or well since 2018 yeah and so that would increase demand in i guess the short term but like you said long term 
you wouldn't have you you would have that demand come offline because they're drawing from their own reserves basically yeah right right so but let's but it's worth which we're talking about the long what's the long-term upside here i mean this is not part of our thesis it doesn't need to be yeah but i do do believe that we will probably see a fleet of small modular reactors and potentially micro reactors now each one of those doesn't use that much uranium but there could be thousands of them instead of the 90 some we have in the united states it's a really elegant solution to to reducing carbon emissions um and potentially could be a really cost effective way to generate power so i mean it could it could tick both boxes and really explode in the 2030s and 40s but you know I could be dead by then so it's hard for me to get super excited about that but i think it'd be very good for society if that's the way it plays out if you were to look back um you know, call it 10 years or if you know a bear uh uranium bear came to you today and was like hey you're wrong on the demand side what would like what would they say what would be their reasons for it it would have well i think the most likely one is the elephant in the room that there's another reactor explodes or something yeah <laughs> yeah they don't explode let's get that out there these things they're not nuclear bombs they 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 but you could but they could do be they, do they do they melt is that a better way to think about it well they call them meltdowns i honestly don't know what that means from a physics standpoint but yeah. i'm thinking they, of like they a candle burning like that's like like that's what i'm thinking yeah, I think it has something to do with the, I mean, I think it has that that name because they do have to keep these reactors cool. And so if, if, if as soon as that cooling process fails, then you have a meltdown and, and bad things happen. Yeah. So you could get a radiation leak. I mean, that's happened three times in since the dawn of nuclear power. And uh, Three Mile Island was, you know, you could argue whether that was real disaster or not but it scared people enough to make nuclear power unpopular for the last what 50 years chernobyl you could blame that on the system i mean even even if you watch the series which i did which is really well done is entertaining as hell but you know i don't know how factual it was but it's still the conclusion was still that that was a bureaucratic breakdown not yeah. anything wrong with the technology and then fukushima you could argue it was a fluke and the meltdown occurred because of the diesel engine uh, failing. So it was a design flaw. And I think the industry is, from what I understand, has learned a lot from all those failures and the technology just keeps getting safer and safer. And maybe it's this is a good point to interject uh, <clears throat> something I learned during the Russian invasion of Ukraine and people were freaking out about a nuclear accident there. You could you could uh crash a jet into a nuclear power plant and it wouldn't cause a nuclear meltdown wow so i mean they're I built to withstand that. yeah i mean they're really built to withstand a crazy amount of risk that's crazy how do they even build that like how do they build the failsafe capacity to withstand that i think most i think the short answer is feet dozens of feet of concrete hmm so is that bullish concrete then? If we go down the, <laughs> if we go down the yeah. valley chain, there you go. And uh, bearish uh, jet pilots, I guess. <laughs> well, that actually does bring up like a a little bit of a tangent, but it, it was something I thought of when I was listening to like different podcasts about like the geology and the and geochemistry of, of of uranium. It's like you can you can play it straight through, you know, with like the Sprott ETF. You know, we own sprout etf you you know u.un um so you know not a recommendation but that that's just how we're playing it, mm -hmm. it made me think of like okay like if this industry is gonna expand and if there's gonna be a huge deficit and there's just gonna be this growing demand for nuclear like what are the ancillary ways that you could play this and are there any other ancillary ways that offer the same asymmetric risk reward which is where i'm having the problem it's like man like the asymmetry just playing straight uranium is pretty intense I don't know if you're going to get that anywhere else. Trust me, we looked and uh, and we passed on some things, uh, but I guess it's important for me to make this distinction that we're uranium, but we're we're bullish on the price of uranium and we want leverage to that. We're not I'm not a nuclear power advocate. I've had to learn a lot about nuclear power just because that's what's important from the demand side. 
Um, but, but, so, but we're not, uh, we're not, we're not looking for ways to get secular exposure to the growth in nuclear power. So we, we've looked at some of the SMR companies, but yeah, you know, that's just a different game. That's not a cyclical game. That's a, that's a growth, you know, it's a growth play yeah. and it could happen. And if you own a basket of them for the next 20 years, you might do very well, but that's just not what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, so, so anyway, I, the short answer is that we haven't found anything with the same dynamics as just the physical uranium and then how that translates to the miners of, of physical uranium. Yeah. I feel like the more you go into like the second, third and fourth derivatives from a supply demand thesis, the less conviction you can develop around that because you, you you just add so many different variables at that point. Yeah, that's our view. And I think that's why we continue to gravitate towards situations where not just uranium, but any situation where microeconomics are the ultimate driver of the outcome. Yeah. So then how do you think about portfolio size and position sizing? Something like uranium where you develop a super high conviction because I know it's kind of funny. Like uranium is one of the industries where people have crazy high conviction and like, you know, you're putting in big chunks of your portfolio in this because it seems inevitable, right? Like that's, that's kind of the point. Um, so how do you think about sizing this in a disciplined or undisciplined manner based <laughs> on, you know, your beliefs? Yeah, that's uh risk tolerance is so personal. I don't think there's an answer for that. Yeah. Um, I can tell you what we're doing from a firm standpoint. Yeah. Uh, we, we have, I mentioned that our flagship strategy is just a small cap, concentrated small cap value strategy. And our guideline is we can have up to 20% exposure to any one industry. And I would, so this is one industry highly correlated. It doesn't get much more correlated than a, than a physical commodity. So we own three uranium miners in our core strategy and they add up to just under 20% weight. And we've been running at that, right at that max for uh, probably four or five years. Got so it. that reflects our conviction. And then we launched a, a standalone strategy to, and then we add another 12 or so uranium equities to that, which we will we'll shut down when this cycle is over. Um, I personally had what might be considered an irresponsible <laughs> exposure to this, both professionally and and in our and personally. Um, but the conviction was just really, really high. And yeah. I mean, that it just seemed like yeah, I mean, you can get in trouble with this. That's why you have to you better know what you're doing and you you, you can't you have to afford to lose money, um, which maybe I maybe I couldn't, but um nevertheless, um it's uh yeah it's a hard that's a hard that's a much i'm i'm probably not the best person to answer that because i'm uh it's a very tough question not a, yeah. not a financial advisor yeah yeah it's a very it's a very tough question um but one i like asking just because it shows both you know kind of skin in the game but also how one thinks about risk and and how they think about managing risk so um well darren this was a great conversation i i learned so much about the supply side the demand side the drivers um how you view the market um and just you know where where potential um you know red flags might be for 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 uranium bulls so uh i'm really looking forward to to, to publishing this tomorrow um if people want to learn more about you get in touch with you and what you do at azarius where can they go to find you we have some information on our azarius website we're not uh, really geared to service retail investors, individual investors. But if you're curious about what we do and why we do it, you can find uh, find information at ZeriusCapital.com. And I do have a Twitter. We do have a Twitter account. We're not very active, but I like to see what other people are saying. Awesome. And Darren, the last question I ask every guest, and I didn't send you an outline before, so this is, this is going to be new. You haven't had time to think. But if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Oh, man. I've listened to your podcast and I didn't uh, I didn't think about preparing for that question. They never so do. Somebody, they never do. Somebody from the past. Oh, probably Ben Franklin from the past. I mean, I'm not a huge American history buff, but I've read enough over the years to think he was probably both a lot of fun, intellectually challenging and wise. So I think that combination could end up being a fantastic dinner in 100%. the future. 
Ah, uh, the future. Let's see. I guess probably I, I can't choose one of my kids. I'd want to I'd want to uh, have dinner with all my all my four kids when they're between fifty and sixty. Yeah, that'd be which fun. is my current age. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be fun. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, Darren, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I appreciate you kicking off my deep dive into into uranium on this podcast, and um, look forward to ta talking with you more. And best of luck at Azarius, and you know, hope this hope this cycle treats you well. Well, you're welcome. I appreciated the opportunity to talk about it, and had a lot of fun doing it. So, thank you. This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive.